0: A reading from Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All together now. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Do you remain standing, please, as we just dedicate this time to the Lord. Father, we pray. Ephesians uh, 1, that you would open the eyes of our heart and we would know you, uh, that we would um, see you for who you truly are, meet with us. We invite you, meet with us right now as we seek you with our whole hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, My name's Ronnie. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And we uh, are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. And if you're new, basically what we're doing is we're taking just a really small part of the Bible and we're explaining it in its context and applying it and seeing why these ancient words are so precious. To just ordinary, modern people. And so we're going to keep doing that here in Ephesians. Uh, If you'll remember from two weeks ago, we talked about how um, Paul, who writes this, actually lived in the city of Ephesus for about two to three years. And, And during that time, like the Holy Spirit did these amazing things. So many people gave their life to Christ, and several new churches were born during that time. Well, a few years later, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Uh, Paul loved them. He remembered his friends, and he thought about them regularly. And so Paul, writing from jail, writes a letter to his friends in these churches at Ephesus, and he includes the prayers that he is praying for them in his letter, right? So we're going to actually study the first recorded prayer in Ephesians, and, and guess you know, you could, you, we heard it just now, but let's think about how he prays, right? Well, Paul doesn't pray for different circumstances. And, and listen, like the circumstances for these Christians in Ephesus were intense. I mean, Ephesus was this deeply pluralistic society. They, there were all kinds of gods, and in fact, emperor worship was regularly practiced. And, it, and the, that, that worship Pluralistic system was deeply ingrained in the economic system of the city. And citizens, now listen, citizens were allowed to believe whatever they wanted to believe, right? You believe in your gods, I believe in my gods. And all of this pluralism seemed really open-minded until the Christians arrived. Now, how come? Well, Christians believed and taught that there was only one true God who could be known only through Jesus Christ. And they taught that other religions were were simply human inventions and that other gods don't actually even exist. And that, as a proposition, provoked intense persecution. Although Christians were actually known and had a reputation in their cities for being peaceful people, for being careful people, uh, for being uh, caring people. And, and not, they were caring not with just people in their own religion. I mean, they were caring with everyone, no matter where you came from. But even still, society wasn't reciprocal. They, they weren't open-minded with them. And so the limits of being open-minded came to a stop when it came to Christians. So belief in Christ resulted in intense persecution. And in fact, Paul himself would be thrown in jail from where he's writing For preaching Christ. But when he prays for his friends, he never prays for God to change their circumstances. He prays, he prays that they would know God more deeply. Now why? Why know know God? Only a robust and accurate knowledge of God can help anyone to joyfully persevere in a life that's marked with difficulty. Now, why is this so relevant for modern audiences? Well, there's kind of two reasons as we're kind of on-ramping here uh, that I've thought about for us in our modern day. You know, on one hand, you'll have some people say, what you believe about God actually doesn't matter. What matters is just how you live, right? That's what matters. Now, listen, not only is that wrong, but it's actually impossible. Your life, my life, is based on our beliefs Even if you've never even explicitly articulated your beliefs, right? Your choices, whatever they may be, are rooted in some belief about the nature of the world. That's just how it works. Everyone has beliefs, and those beliefs shape your choices. So it's extremely important, then, to know what is true, and so that your beliefs and reality are the same thing, you see. Now, on the other hand, some people would say, you know, you Christians, you're so pushy. Give me a break. Like, I believe in God, right? I believe in God. Like, leave me alone already. Now, that, that response is a little bit more complicated, and, and let me explain why. Um, a few years ago, uh, an intense debate in my family erupted. This is a, circa 2015. You might remember this. Uh, we call it, you can actually Google this, hashtag dressgate. Anyone? Uh, let, me, let me remind you. Uh, a guy in 2015 posts a picture on the internet of a dress. Now, 50% of the people looking at this dress see a dress that's blue and black. And then 50% of the people looking at this dress see a dress that is gold and white. Everyone is looking at the same dress, and they're describing it differently. I mean, who, who's seeing it accurately? And everyone has really passionate opinions. Well, that phenomena that, you, that, that was hashtag was That actually happens with God. See, all of our friends are using this word God quite loosely, but our conception of who he is and what we're looking like is different. And it matters. Why? Because your beliefs, examined or not, affect your ability to live in this world, especially a world of intense disappointment and opposition. And if you don't have a rock-solid vision of who God is, You'll sell out, or you'll collapse, or you'll become spiritually lazy the moment that conflict and disappointment come. So many people say they know God, but they know God kind of like how we know the President of the United States, right? Uh, You read some blogs, uh, you watch the news, Uh, maybe you have a bad opinion, maybe you have a good opinion, but you don't know him, right? Right? You know about him, but you don't know him. He doesn't know your name. You're not friends. This is how we know God, you see. This is how most people do. They they know a little information about God, but they don't have a relationship with him. And so for this reason, Paul prays for the churches in Ephesus, and he wants something deep and true for them. So he doesn't pray for different circumstances. he prays that they would know God deeply. So let's examine this prayer, and uh, what we're going to see is kind of two themes emerge from this first prayer recorded, starting in verse 15. We're going to see a, a kind of radical Thanksgiving, and then we're going to see um, his Thanksgiving, um, excuse me, his petitions. and we're going to look at those, those petitions. So let's begin with Thanksgiving. Uh, let me begin by setting this up with an illustration. That's kind of what I do when I preach, I guess. Um, so on occasion, I, I like watching the Oscars or the Grammys. Uh, I don't really care about like which movie or song wins. I watch them for the speeches. Now, uh, just as an aside, um, sometimes these, like, speeches are really cringy, right? Uh, Like, how can such brilliant actors have such little composure or elegance, like, when they have to give the speech? I mean, it's, uh, I don't understand. It's like they turn emotionally immature or awkwardly ideological. I don't know. Something weird happens when they give these speeches. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not making this up. Okay. All right. But during the speech, inevitably, the actor or the actress or the musician uh, will thank someone who they believe are to be credited for their success, right? So it'll be something like this. Mom, this one's for you. Without you, none of this would have been possible. This award belongs to you, right? I mean, it's, it's the script. Uh, that's actually, essentially, what Paul is doing in this prayer. Look there in verse 15. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, verse 16, I do not cease, what? To give thanks for you. Now, who's Paul thanking for the faith and love in the church, right? He's thanking the Lord for their faith and love. So you can see the theology of Paul in his thanksgiving. Um, if, there's anything in, if there's anything good in us, essentially, we must give thanks to God. You know, St. Augustine, or Augustine, in his uh, book, Confessions, he, he says this. He says, Lord, the good in me is due to you, and the rest is my fault. That's, that's good theology. So who, like, who do you thank for good things in your life? Who do you think? Do you think yourself? Like, hey, look what I've done. I did this. Or do you say, none of this would have been possible without God's mercy and love? That's a different way to live, isn't it? Listen, uh, there's more in this thanksgiving, though. So Paul, you'll see there, in verse 16, he gives thanks to God. But there is still this profound affirmation to the believers themselves. So he's saying, wow, I'm so proud of you. God is really doing something in your life. This faith and this love, faith in God and love for the saints. God is really doing something. I'm proud of you. Those of you guys... Those are some of the most powerful words you'll ever hear. I'm so proud of you. I have lived, like, my whole life hungry for affirmation. You know, honestly, and uh, Amanda could tell you this, kind of the root of sin in my life is tied to this addiction for approval. Like, every child is hungry for their father to look at them and say, I am proud of you. I see God working in your heart. You know, some of you will never hear those words from your fathers. And some of you, even if your father said them, you wouldn't trust them anyway. I've lost all my notes here, I'm too emotional. Telling you about my sin. Uh. Sorry. <clears throat> I think about those words of, like, I am proud of you. We need those words. We need them. I hope we say them to each other. Wives. Look at your husbands and, and find something positive. And I know it's going to be hard to do. But say, I see God working in your heart this way. Husbands, look your wives in the eyes and, and like say those words. Don't just assume them. Say them. Do this with your children. If you're single, go to a friend. Look them in the eyes and say, I'm encouraged by the person you're becoming in Christ your anger is less volatile. Your priorities are different. You're fighting against these hard addictions in your life. I'm really proud of you. Oh, I want you to feel that, that, that sentiment in this community. You know, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every Sunday is worth it. It is, is, is God's way of saying you're worth it. He's proud of you. So in Paul's letter, it begins with thanksgiving. And this is his way of giving all the credit to God for all the good things that are happening in the community, while at the same time affirming, affirming these really beautiful things that are happening in the church. And affirmation is so powerful. I, I want affirmation to like roll off your lips to, in this church and your families and your friendships. So this prayer begins with Thanksgiving, but then it moves, you'll see, to petitions so the anchor of Paul's petition in verse 18 is this desire that God would open the eyes of their heart, right? To illumine them, to enlighten them. Because we need uh, the eyes of our hearts to see what's right in front of us. But seeing accurately is really tricky. It is. It's tricky. One time a pastor friend of mine, he went to this high school, game in, uh, high school football game in Florida And so he goes to the ticket stand uh, to pay for his admission. And sitting there was a young lady, a student, who seemed smart enough to make this exchange. And the sign said, admission, $6. So he pulls out a $20 bill, and he gives it to her. And she returns $16 and change. And he's, like, staring at her. And she's staring at him. And he's thinking to himself, does this... Young lady, not know how to do the math. I mean, what are they teaching in schools these days, right? little curmudgeon. And so he steps back, takes a look at the the sign, a little bit exaggerated to kind of show her what he's doing, to show her her error. And he looks again, and there's a line that says, seniors rate, $4. (laughs) Classic case. We only see what we're looking for, right? What's the point? Seeing accurately is incredibly complex. Paul knows that it's complex. And this is why Paul says, Lord, open the eyes of their hearts. The eyes of their heart is what we really need to see God accurately. And so what does Paul ask for on their behalf with this accuracy? Verse 17, he petitions knowledge. Verse 18, hope. Verse 19, power. Let me consider these three petitions. Verse 17, knowledge. So he requests for God to give them, verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You see that? In the knowledge of him. When I was in the university, I kept a really intense schedule. So I played division one sports, intense uh, no kidding, I'm not exaggerating, I averaged 21 hours a semester, every semester. It was extremely busy. I didn't watch TV or listen to music. There's a joke, like, I have a gap of pop culture from 1996 to 2000. I don't know any music or shows that came out during that time. Uh, it was in a very intense four years for me. Uh, and because it was so uh, busy, I needed an equally intense experience of God Um, in his word and so I pursued Christian discipleship very intensely in those years they were very formative for me and so the campus ministry that I went to like there was no food there's no skits uh, there's no long-haired Christian kid wearing skinny jeans playing Hillsong music on an acoustic guitar none of that right it was like come in sit down open your bible right so super intense and we memorized lots of verses and why like why did we do this um, my mentor used to say to me, he would say, you cannot worship that which you do not know. you can't have a relationship with a person you do not know And so my mentor would pray Ephesians 1 for me And this is how and, and, and this is how come like uh, this church, Denver Pres, longs to be a church that's saturated like with God's word. we desire that that God's Spirit would illumine God's Word so that we would engage God's revelation with the eyes of our hearts so that we would walk in God's world with God's wisdom, right? And so when Paul prays, he doesn't pray for different circumstances. He prays that the church would be flooded with God's revelation through his Word. That's what they really needed. And so that's what we need. And that's the first petition he his first petition is knowledge. Then verse 18, Paul also prays that they may know the hope to which he has called you. You see that in verse 18? So the second petition is hope. Hope. In our modern culture, when we use the word hope, we're intentionally communicating uncertainty. That's how we use the word in our modern parlance. Uh, So, for instance, in 2018, this was the year after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, uh, let me tell you the words that came out of my mouth twice a day for about three months. I hope that I win Hamilton lottery tickets. The musical. So Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's Puerto Rican, comes to Puerto Rico, does a show. The only way to get tickets is through this lottery. And so I said, I hope. I went, I didn't win the lottery. But I hoped it. Um, in the Bible though, it's the word hope is literally the exact opposite of how I use those words. In the, word, uh, in the New Testament, the word hope is actually the absolute certainty of something in the future. So, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, the author says, Now faith is the assurance or the certainty of things hoped for, Right? Now, I don't have a lot of time to kind of go into this, but my goodness, this is perhaps the single most important topic for our modern culture because there is a vacuum of hope in our society. Like on a personal level, uh, we experience, when we experience hopelessness, we tend to live our lives uh, in utter self-protection, right? We become extremely uh, fear-driven, fear uh, we become less generous because we fear scarcity. We withdraw into our enclaves because we're so afraid of secularism. Uh, we become crabby we, uh, because we see no future or we stop believing that like, people can change, like the people that we love can change. We become alarmists when our guy doesn't win his campaign, the political position that he's looking for. Like, we're so unnerved because our guy didn't get into office because we're so hopeless. In that moment, our hope is placed in something in the world that can be taken away. And and when there's no certainty in the things that we've placed our hope in, we live chronically anxious and grumpy lives and we're stingy. And then we take it out on all the people that we love the most. What if I said, you're a jerk because you have no hope? That's basically how I do pastoral counseling. I'm kidding. All right. I won't say that. That's not true at all. All right. Um, But but do you know um, why many people don't change? Why they don't change? Why month after month we keep doing the same sad, disgusting things? It's because we don't have any hope that any of it matters. Right? There is this relationship between the certainty of our hope and the life that we're living. And so no one, no one escapes that reality. Paul knows that the only key for these churches in Ephesus to overcome very difficult circumstances is this hope. Their present lives then are given incredible power when they rest in the future hope to which God is calling them, Paul's words. So Paul doesn't pray for different circumstances. He prays that they would be flooded with a profound sense of hope. And so when Paul prays for these churches in Ephesus, first he prays for knowledge, that he petitions knowledge, and then for hope. But then third, verse 19, he prays for power. Paul prays, look there in verse 19, that they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, who believe. Now listen, in that clause, a measurable greatness of his power, uh, Paul is really excited here. Like if you, in the Greek, the, Paul says, megathos dunameas. Now, I know you guys don't know Greek, but what does that sound like? Huperbalon megathos dunameos? Sounds like hyper mega dynamite, right? That's the power that he's praying for. In this text, Paul is speaking with these superlatives because he wants this power for you. God wants for you to experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and put him at the right hand of the Father, verse 20. It's the same power that he exercises when he exerts authority over all authorities and dominions and every name in this age and the ages to come, verse 21. Verse 21. It's that same power. Paul longs for you to experience his power so that you don't grow cold and presumptuous or casual with God. Listen, you guys know that we're Presbyterians. We're not prone to emotional excesses. There's not going to be any shofar horns or any prophesying from the stage. Perhaps we have earned the moniker, uh, the frozen chosen. And forgive us, Lord For where we have erred or sinned. But listen, this power is important. You have to be certain that God's power is operating in you. And just like Paul, I pray that for you. I pray that you would feel God's power coursing through you. Like if you have friends who are like, I don't know, rough around the edges, and if you've said about them, you know, They're not the church-going types. They're not the kind of people who want to go to church. If you've ever said something like that, then I want you to know you don't know God's power. No one's the church type. You're not the church-going type, right? Don't, Don't overestimate yourself. We're all a mess. All of us are here because God's power coursed through us. You are not a Christian because of your tradition. You are a Christian because Jesus had an encounter with you, and he dragged you into a relationship with him, and you repented of your sins, and you received him in faith. Now, maybe you don't remember the exact date or that moment, but that is what happened. And if you've never done that, if you've never had that experience, it's likely because it's because you prefer to rely on your own power to reach God. But there are no ladders tall enough to reach God. This hyper mega dynamite of God does not blow you to pieces, it makes what's already fragmented whole again. Do you have that power in your life? Paul didn't ask for different circumstances. He prayed that God would give them, his friends, an experience of this power to persevere. So let me just quickly conclude. So we studied Paul's very first prayer that's recorded to these churches in Ephesus. And when we examined this prayer, we noticed that his prayer was composed of thanksgiving And these petitions. And in his petitions, he asked God to open the eyes of their heart that they would get knowledge, hope, and power. And I would just invite you this week here's your homework. I'm terrible at applications, but here's your homework. Take this prayer, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, personalize it, pray it for a friend, pray it for a child. Pray it for yourself. And if you don't want to pray this for yourself, why? So let me bring you though to one last, if you'll just indulge me more, let me get one last detail of this passage. As you read this prayer again this week, you're gonna come across a little clause. It's a little bit puzzling. So Paul's praying for them, he's longing for them, longing for them to know God deeply. And then in verse 18, it says that he wants them to know. Look there, verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, every time in the scriptures uh, that they talk, every time the scriptures talk about an inheritance, it's always re- referencing an inheritance from God the Father, which is stored up in heaven for us. But here, this text is talking about God's inheritance, like he's getting an inheritance. Like, what is God's inheritance? So what could God possibly want that he doesn't already have? You know, every Christmas, it happened again last month. My kids asked me, what do you want for Christmas? But you know, like, I, adults, y'all know this. Like, buying presents for adults is kind of hard. Why? Because if we want something, we don't wait for Christmas. We just buy whatever we want, Right? Like, we don't wait for Christmas. So, at Christmas time, there's nothing really I want. And uh, my kids don't have money. I, I have way more, ne- more money than they do. And so, but they want to give me something. And you know what I ask for? Every time, I ask for poetry. I ask uh, for them to write me a poem or to draw me a picture. And in that moment, what am I asking for? It's, I'm asking for them. Having my babies close to me is the greatest gift a father can have, right? Listen, you're God's inheritance. You are what he deeply wants. He wants you close to his heart. But it's an inheritance. And you know how inheritances work, right? You don't get an inheritance until there's been a death. So let me say it again. You are God's inheritance. Jesus died, and he got you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the deepest part of your soul? You pray that to your children. You pray that for your friends. You pray that to your spouse and yourself, that you would know but you are God's inheritance. If you dare to believe that, it will change you. I promise it will change you. Amen. Amen.